Micah 4 to begin this. Where we were in the sermonette for a little bit, I, I want to pick up a thought here and, and bridge the gap between it and where we are in this series of sermons I've been giving about honoring our Father in Heaven. Now, let's understand Hosea in the framework of it applying, first of all, as do all the prophecies, to the church and secondarily to the nation. It says, Hear the word of the Eternal in Hosea 4, verse 1. You children of Israel, or we are spiritual Israel or spiritual Judah today. So these prophecies were written for the end time and have to do with us first and the rest of physical Israel secondarily. And these prophecies are in essence pretty much now fulfilled in the church. A time of spiritual famine and testing we're in the middle of. We have seen many of our brethren, sisters, relatives die a spiritual death of a spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease, which has affected the whole church. It is about to happen now to our physical nation as well. But it is continuing with the church. As Amos said, a fast not of bread, but of a famine of the Word of God. So that is not only in the nation as a whole, but it is within the church of God, where we have lost a great deal of the knowledge of God, and there is a famine of the Word no matter where we go. That was also mentioned. For the Eternal has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. We had begun to go into, if not physical, spiritual sin, swearing and lying and killing and stealing, committing adultery. They break out and blood touches blood. Therefore shall a land mourn, and every one that dwells therein shall languish, with the beasts of the fields, with the fowls of heaven, Yes, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. So a time of terrible trouble and calamity is about to come down upon us in the nation as it has in the church. Verse 4, Yet let no man strive, nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. We are all in such sad spiritual condition, God says, But let's not strive and fight one another. Let's not argue with one another about who is the most righteous or who is the Philadelphian and who is the Laodicean because most have judged themselves Philadelphians and everyone else Laodicean. So it says you're all such a mess that it isn't a time to strive over who is the most righteous. Uh, You know, the disciples got into that and Christ was not happy with them at all who is the greatest. Uh, We have a little different view of it today. We still do it. We just do it in a different form or fashion. It isn't quite as raw, perhaps, as they were in saying, I am the greatest. But we do it a little more subtly and by saying, I'm a Philadelphian and you're a Laodicean. It's essentially the same. When we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. We all fall far short of what we should be. So, why strive? And he says, it's like striving with the priest. If God established the priesthood, 
Uh, we're not to strive in that sense because God placed that and it is there for a responsibility and for a purpose. It doesn't do any good to strive with the teacher. It doesn't do any good to strive with each other. We're going to see that the priesthood or the ministry itself, and that's part of the point here, has gone astray, and that is one reason the people have gone astray. Therefore shall you fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Now, Jerusalem above is the mother of us all, as Paul put it in Galatians. And the church, in that sense, is a mother to take care of the children and appoint them to the Father. Not to get between the children and the Father, but to point them to the Father. That is the mother's or the church's job. Now, he says, I will destroy your mother. We can go to Micah 4. I will not turn there for sake of time. I don't want to spend too much on this. But there it says, your king is dead, your counselor has perished, or vice versa. He's speaking of the church there. Our leader, Herbert Armstrong, that we all looked to, has died. He's perished. And he is no longer there, so we have fallen into disarray. And it even says, I think, is it in Ezekiel 17 or I thinking of Isaiah, uh, where it says that the leaders, the evangelists, and so on, would also be taken and snared. And that, for the most part, has occurred as well. So, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, we do have a certain amount of knowledge, don't we? We have a certain amount of truth. But for the most part, the church has not continued to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, but has basically shifted into park mentally and spiritually, and has not progressed from what we had. And what we had was insufficient in terms not only of the amount of knowledge, but in the ability, the capacity to actually follow through with that knowledge in the way that God wanted us to. So as a result, he has spewed all of us out of his mouth, scattered the church a great deal, and destroyed our mother. So there's, a, there's certain knowledge that we are either not using or don't have. I will also reject you that you shall be no priest to me, Seeing you have forgotten the law of your, of your God, I will also forget your children. So the ministry and the members, God says he is going to forget or cast aside. He says he will turn his face from us, I think, a little further even in this same chapter. I won't go there. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. We couldn't stand prosperity. So we began to sin more and more against God to become lackadaisical, lukewarm, and He cannot stand that state. He would prefer we're cold so we can be kicked out, or hot so that we are worthwhile, but lukewarm He spews out. And that was our problem overall. So, as they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. 
It has all come apart. And people say, well, what church are you? Well, I don't know anymore. <laughs> it's gone. It's been destroyed. Your church has been destroyed. You're still following it. Well, sort of. But it's gone. It's scattered into hundreds of pieces. Thousands, if you count individuals, who are basically unaligned and doing their own thing. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be, and this is one of the things I wanted to get to, there shall be, like people, like priests, a situation where there is no leadership that we can all recognize or follow. And everyone says, well, I know just as much as you. Matter of fact, I probably know more than you do. So the ministry is looked down upon, disrespected, and people kind of do their own thing. Now, some never did like a ministry in the first place, so they were kind of happy when that happened, I suppose. None of us like to have a human being as a leader or a guider, an instructor. We prefer to think, as Americans have been taught, that my opinion is just as good as yours. Well, none of our opinions are much count. It's a matter of what does God say. Now, let's note, it says, I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doing. So it comes to the point where the church has fallen into such a sad state of disrepair, along with the ministry, that there is no respect left. And that is a sad, not a good situation. It's something that God says is a part of the punishment. It's part of the trouble, is that there is no one to guide and to lead. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the eternal. Now, we're giving this series of sermons, it's the longest one I've ever given, about honoring our Father in heaven. He says, where is my honor? Well, anywhere you go in the Bible, it seems, you come across scriptures like this. I was reading on down during the sermonette. They have left off to take heed to the eternal. There's the problem. See, there is a problem in the church that God defines here. It's something that needs to be fixed. I wanted to turn to Isaiah 52 in this regard, <clears throat> in terms of leadership. Isaiah 52 and about verse 18. He's telling us in verse 17 to wake up, that we have drunk at the hand of the eternal's fury. He spit us out of his mouth. And he says, There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. So when our counselor, our king, in that sense, our leader of the church, died, there's been no one really to lead her in the way that she should go since. There are some who say, I have the authority to do that, or I'm the only one, or you better come to me. But God says, there has been none. <clears throat> and that's where it is. Those who qualify themselves and say they are qualified do not meet the qualifications. Yours truly included. 
The problem is they have left off to take heed to the eternal. All of us have. He says we must all turn to Him with our whole heart. The only reason I continue to speak is because I feel a responsibility to turn you and me back to our Father so that these problems can be resolved. Now, he does tell us in Haggai and Zechariah that he is going to send leadership to us. But he says we have to turn to him first. Notice chapter 515 just catches my eye. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. Most in the church of God today are not willing to admit their own offense. Most adjudge themselves Philadelphians to this day, not realizing God has spewed us all out for our lukewarmness and our inattention to Him. It is the major problem among those called into the church of God in the end time. The major problem. We must acknowledge our own sin, our own faults, our own failings, and turn to God and seek His face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. The only way to turn around the inattention to God that has been and is in the church today is affliction. The God would scatter us, He would diminish us, He would try us and test us, and in our affliction, we will then begin to turn to Him. Now we know that needs to be done. Getting it done is the difficult part. But I will guarantee you that he will continue to heap affliction and trouble upon us until we turn and seek him with our whole heart. Relief will only come when we truly, from the heart, turn to God with our heart. And that is God's complaint in Malachi 1, where is my honor? And he condemns the ministry and the people in Malachi 1 through 3 for that situation. And says that those who speak often of him, who have their minds on God, are the ones he will use to make up his jewels at the end of this whole thing. So, to begin today, I wanted to take a little time to show that no matter where you go in the Bible, you're going to find this problem laid out before your eyes. The whole book was written with the end-time church as the grand smash climax, along with the destruction of the world shortly thereafter. He put it on us first for a reason. He punished us ahead of physical Israel because we are the ones who need to repent first so we can provide the leadership that is needed for the church and for the world from somewhere among us 
around this earth, God is going to produce the leadership that is needed. But we first have to turn to the leadership of God. Then He will give us teachers of men, leaders, as He has always done in the past. Notice Romans 16. We're not going to get away from this. It is here. Verse 14 of Romans 10. How then shall they call him, call on him, in whom they have not believed, speaking here of the Jews and the Greeks, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? God has always provided prophets or ministers throughout history, going all the way back to Enoch and Noah and forward from there. You and I would have never learned the truth unless God had sent somebody with the truth. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. That's quoted from Isaiah 52, where it's leading up to the ministry of the two witnesses. That's the context of Isaiah 51, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So, this is the time that is the final fulfillment of what Christ quoted in that day. And the two witnesses, by the way, are told to first inspect and take care of the church in Revelation 11 and leave out the Gentiles, those who are not in the church, for a while. But their first attention is to the church. And Zechariah 4 shows that they are to give the golden oil to all seven of the churches. Not just one branch of it, but to make it available for everyone in the church, if they are willing to hear. And it shows very clearly there that only 10% will respond favorably. And God will stir them to come and build the temple. So, this passage is for the end time. And we need to realize and understand that since the death of Herbert Armstrong, who did a calling work, there has been a dearth of leadership. And when we repent and turn to God and seek Him with our hearts, He is going to give us human leadership again, but not until. Let's understand why what we have been going through is as important information as you can possibly have. Now, it may be growing old. We've been on it for a long time. But still in all, there are so many ramifications to honoring our Father in heaven and giving Him honor that are throughout the entire Bible that I don't know how we could emphasize it too much. Now, this is mostly for us. I can't imagine very many people who look at our website now saying, well, there's a series of sermons that's going to go 40, 45. I don't have time to listen to all that, so it won't get listened to very much, at least not now. But I think it's something that we have to deeply consider. And I don't think there can really be too much of it, because all these scriptures do tie in together. So there will be those who will come and fulfill Isaiah 52 in its final 
a replication of what Christ was saying here. Now, I brought up a subject last week, which I hemmed and hawed around on a little bit, uh, in terms of our relationship with Christ Himself and what the relationship should be and should we pray to Him. Uh, was He to be worshipped when He was here on this earth? And I said pray to and mention worship. I didn't intend to mention the word worship there necessarily. just kind of worked its way in. But I thought about that a little more this week and have looked up some scriptures and how he approached the subject of worship when he was here on the earth and what he instructed us to do in terms of prayer. And I would like to devote this today primarily to this subject because I think it's important that we understand exactly uh, what the relationship of the Father and the Son is and our relationship to them and how that relationship should be carried on. The reason this question came up in my mind was Christ is our husband-to-be, if we are indeed included in, as I hope we are, to be part of the Bride of Christ. Uh, and you like to speak with your husband-to-be, so there is that natural desire to some degree. Uh, but is it the form that we are to follow, and how should we then do it, and what is the correct form? <clears throat> Recall, in the series I gave about tradition from the Old Testament about the bride and the groom, and how he would be gone for a long, hot summer before he would come and reclaim his bride. That's the way the story went. Now, in some cases, they may have been next-door neighbors, so it didn't quite apply. But the analogy and the symbolism was there, and certainly fit the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac was to take a wife from the family, which was removed. Remember, Abraham had been asked by God to leave and go find Jerusalem, and had left the family behind. So, there was a trip and everything involved and then Isaac did not claim his bride until further down the road. So even as we have been left in the Holy Day sequence through Passover, Pentecost, now the long hot summer before trumpets comes and Christ returns, I'm not saying this year, I'm saying the symbolism is there, lest you think I'm predicting something that is not going to happen, which it is not. He has got quite a few years before he will return. There are too many events that have to occur first, and therefore we can clearly say that 2012 will not be the end of the world. It just won't happen. Maybe some severe events by then, but it's not the end of the world. Let's not get too far off on that now. But what was the relationship, and where should we pray? Let's consider the term worshipped first. Now, I'm not going to go to every place where uh, people, when Christ was here on the earth, worshipped Him or tried to worship Him. But I want to turn to a few that show his, essentially His attitude about that. Let's go to Matthew, and I'll spend most of this in Matthew, because the others repeat it. But Matthew 8 is the first place I wish to go. Matthew 8 and verse 2. 
And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Christ put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be you clean. Now notice, he doesn't reprimand the man for coming and worshiping and calling him Lord, nor does he encourage it. He just let it lay. And we'll find that this is essentially his approach regardless. There is uh, quite a little evidence. Chapter 9, verse 18. And while he spoke these things to them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay your hand upon her, and she shall live. And Emmanuel arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So he didn't comment on it one way or the other. And you'll see this is a trend. Matthew 14, verse 33. Did I write that down wrong? No, I'm in 13, no wonder. Uh, And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, you are the Son of God. He didn't comment, and when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. Now, he was the Son of God. He had been born on this earth as a human being. He was human, and yet, truly, he was the Son of God in a human form. So what they were saying was not necessarily wrong, but it wasn't what he wished them ultimately to do. And I believe that is why he basically ignored these things, did not address them. He didn't say, do not worship me. And yet he didn't encourage them in any place you will find to do so. Now, he made some pretty pointed uh, remarks to the Pharisees, as we'll see in a little bit, about who he was. But he always encouraged worship the Father. He always pointed to the Father in heaven, not to himself. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 25 of Matthew. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. So here's one, a Gentile woman, (coughs) who came with a worshipful attitude, and he just simply turned her aside and said, Lady, this isn't for you. Now, it was not at that point. He had not instituted the new covenant, and there was still that division between Israel and and, uh, the Gentile world on a physical level. That was to change very shortly, but at that point it had not not been changed. And he said he had not seen that kind of faith even in Israel. But he did not encourage her. In fact, in this case, he discouraged her and says, Go away, I'm not going to answer your prayer or your desire or your, your wish. Chapter 28, let's go to verse 9 here. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Emmanuel met them, saying, All hail, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Emmanuel to them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there you shall see them. So he didn't address worship one way or another in any of these cases. He just bypassed it and went on with what he was doing. Or, in some cases, he went and healed, but he did not acknowledge the worship that was given to him. The closest I found was in John 9, so let's go there for a moment. There may have been some things that I missed due to key words that I might not have 
have gotten. But let's go to John 9, because this is a a case that uh, needs to be looked at. Verse 35 of John 9. Emmanuel heard that they had cast him out. Um, Wait a minute, where am I? Verse 35, I wanted. Uh, 34, they answered and said to him, You were altogether born in sins, and do you teach us? And they cast him out. So they were telling Christ that he had been born uh, illegitimately and uh, born in sin, and who are you to teach us? That was their attitude, which it frequently was. Emmanuel heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Emmanuel said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. So he's admitting to them who he is. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So he believed then that Christ was the Son of God. And Emmanuel said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. And Emmanuel said, For judgment I came into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? So they wondered. Emmanuel said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see. We think we know. We do see. Therefore, your sin remains. So he did tell them that he was the Son of God. He had been sent. But he did not necessarily encourage their worship here. He just simply said, You've seen and heard the Son of God. Now, let's look at the word worship in a couple of places. Matthew 6. Turn too far. Matthew 6, I want to go to. And here, let's pick it up in verse 6. Now, he's instructing his disciples. Now, this is direct instruction from he who was the Son of God who had come down from his Father in heaven. And here is how he instructs us to pray. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father which is in secret. He does not say to pray to him, even though he was the Son of God. He could have said, I'm God. I'm God on earth. I was born in the flesh, but I'm God and the Son of God, so you can pray to me. That was not his instruction. Now, this instruction was given to those disciples who would become the apostles. And going forward, this was his instruction to them. Here he is beginning to introduce to them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the new covenant. He's bringing the law from essentially a physical compliance up to a mental and spiritual, emotional level in a way that it had never been kept. 
And part of this upgrade to the new covenant was in how to address deity. So it said, when you pray, here's how you are to do it. You're to pray in secret. You're not to be like the Pharisees that go out and pray in the streets and are self-righteous about what they do. You're to keep it quiet. You're to do it in secret. You're not to go out and tell everybody about how much you prayed this morning or what you had to say. You're to do it quietly, respectfully before God. Pray to your Father, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So we have our relationship with God between us and God, and then He if we are doing what we're supposed to spiritually, will take care of us and He will reward us openly. So we don't need to brag about how much we pray or when we pray or if we prayed. All we need to do is do it quietly with our Father and then let Him take care of others seeing how God is acting and enacting or reacting in our lives. That's the way it's supposed to be. But it is prayer to the Father. When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. So, the things that we ask, the things that we need, we ask of the Father, not of Christ. He didn't say that here at all. After this manner, therefore, pray you, our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I've covered this recently. It's not my Father, necessarily. It's our Father. Because we are all brothers and sisters together. And our prayers are not to be selfish, but our prayers should be for each other as well. So it's our Father, not just my Father, is the instruction that is given. Now our prayers can sometimes certainly be very, very personal, as David's were in the Psalms. Uh, But even in personal prayer, I think it wise to address Him as our Father. Not that I have an inside track with Him because it's my prayer. Always recognize that we are in this together. It's not just you and me, Lord. And we covered that some last week. In that how we interact one with the other is how we will be judged. If it's with love and mercy and forgiveness... That's how He will treat us. If it's with grudges and animosity and lack of forgiveness and mercy, then that's exactly what we will get in our judgment. So we simply cannot live as a Christian alone. You can't do it. God called us together, and He expects us to interact together And to learn to love and worship Him together as members of the body of Christ. And Paul even explains that and says one part of the body can't be off on its own. It has to all be joined together. 
Now, we have a problem as I started this sermon, right? The church has been scattered. The body has been scattered. Fingers and toes and behinds and heads flying every direction. And that's not good. That's part of the punishment. Now, those who have felt liberated and thought, well, I didn't need that anyway, are misinformed and don't understand what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 12, nor what is happening in the church. Because to be independent and to be on your own is not what God intends. He expects us to be fitly joined together so that we can become the bride of Christ. The fact that we are scattered today is a curse upon us. The fact that we do not have leadership that we can all recognize and go to is a curse in itself. And the fact that only 10% are even going to respond to the two witnesses shows how terribly Remiss we are in understanding and knowledge and devotion to God, so that even when He does provide physical leadership again, so many have been so turned off by us, the ministry, that they will not respond. And that is a sad state of affairs. God appointed a ministry, Ephesians 5. For the joining and perfection and growth together of the church. And a situation where we do not have proper, righteous leadership is a terrible situation. Now, you and I need to rectify this to the best we can under these circumstances. We need to understand what is happening and why it is here. So it's our Father. That's what set me off on that. Not just my Father. Now let's go back to Luke 6. Verse 12. And it came to pass in those days... Then he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And the only God that could be there was his Father, Father in heaven. So Christ, when he was here, continually prayed to God, to the Father. Before his death, he prayed to the Father. He asked the disciples to pray to the Father, not to pray to him. He was about to take on the sin of the world on his back. And he was filthy then, not with his sin, but our sin. And he had to die because the penalty of sin is death. And the fact that he took our sin on his back is why he had to die. So he was filthy. And the father departed or withdrew from him. And he said it in his own words. Why have you forsaken me? He had been close to his father all through his life. And suddenly, when he was at the point of death, God departed from him. Because he was filthy with our sins and God departs from sin. 
Now, that's why He's turned His face from us as a church and let us fall apart without leadership physically or, in that sense, even His own leadership. When you turn your face away, and that is symbolically what He says He has done, now, does that, not, does that mean that He doesn't count the hair on our head and so on? No. He is still very, very concerned with us. It doesn't mean He doesn't love us, but He just can't stand what He's looking at right now. That's the problem. And He wants with all His heart to see us turn with our hearts to Him so that He can look down with pleasure and love and great feeling and express the feeling that He has inside that is bottled up right now because of us. Think about when your children make a mess of things. Your love for them is not diminished. You just want to throttle them at the moment. You still love them with all your heart. You just can't stand the way they're acting. And therefore, things go south pretty quickly. And when you rectify the problem, then the love and the smiling and the kisses and the hugs and the warm feelings can continue or be restored. It's the same with us and God. It's not that He doesn't love us with all His heart. It's just that we haven't turned to Him with our whole heart. And He doesn't like to see rebellion and sin and wretchedness. We see a wretched world around us that needs changed, and we can do nothing about it now. But He has challenged us with a responsibility to become the bride of Christ and help Him straighten this world out. So if you think you don't have a way of doing something, yes, you do. It's just a matter of time. But right now it's getting us straightened out that is the problem. And it is our honor to Him that is missing So he prayed to the Father. Let's go to Matthew 4. Here I want verse 10. Then said Emmanuel to him, Get you hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Eternal your God, and Him only shall you serve. Words to that effect are found in the book of Deuteronomy, about chapters 5 and 6. The Ten Commandments and the follow-up message afterward in Deuteronomy 6. So Christ is saying to Satan, worship only the Father. Now we'll talk about Christ in His glorified state a little later. But that was the instruction He gave, and that's the scripture He quoted, that Satan was very familiar with. Now to John 4. I think we're going to see a trend here as we keep looking at various scriptures of where Christ always pointed. You can go to John 14, 15, 16, 17, which we just went through recently, two or three or four weeks ago. And there he constantly and consistently told the disciples about their relationship with the Father. He did not point to himself. He admitted who he was in that 
particular teaching, and I'm not going to go back through it all on this basis, but it's there and shows that he pointed to the Father. Now notice John 4, verse 23. He's talking here to the Pharisees. We said you don't know who you worship. But the hour comes, and now is. Not only is it coming, but it's already here, he says. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, he was only establishing true worship at that time. So he says it's coming, but really it's already here. My disciples are learning to worship the Father. And that's what he had told us, remember? Or had told them there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Pray our Father. So he said, the hour is already here when the true worshipers, and I hope we can be included among those, as it was just beginning at that time, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And Emmanuel said to her, I that speak to you am he. So I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what's being established and what shall be with true worshipers in the future. But I'm going to let you in on something. I am that Christ. So he didn't say, worship me, he said, worship the Father. And true worshipers will do that. But he said, I'm the one here to deliver the message. I am the messenger. He didn't say, well, I'm here, worship me. He said, no, worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what true believers will do. Chapter 16 of John. I, I said I wouldn't go through this, but I'm going to hit one spot here. John 16, verse 26. He says, I'll show you plainly of the Father in verse 25. And he says, at that day, you shall ask in my name. And I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you. He said, the time is coming when I will be your representative. Now, it was not yet the case. You shall ask in my name. And I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God or from the Father. So he said, there is something coming that is going to be different. And I will be your representative. I'm not going to pray for you. I don't mean he doesn't pray for us or talk to the Father about us. It means you will be able to go to the Father yourself. We'll see that when we get into the book of Hebrews very clearly. Um, where do I want to go next? I think, let's go to honor. Uh, here we'll stay in John 5. John 5 and beginning in verse 18. Well, verse 17, but Emmanuel answered them, My Father works here too, and I work. So again, he's pointing to the Father who's, 
whose work it is, and he's saying, essentially, I work for the Father. And he said in other places, without the Father, I can do nothing. On my own, I am nothing. As a human being, he had to have his Father in heaven, and he depended on that Father daily in prayer. But Emmanuel answered them, My father works hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, in their view, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So he didn't come out and say, Well, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, you should worship me. He points to the Father. But they put it together and said, Well, if he's the Son of God, then he's putting himself equal with God. That was their attitude. And, of course, they hated him for that. (coughs) Then answered Emmanuel and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. So, Son of God notwithstanding, God in the flesh notwithstanding, he pointed them and his disciples throughout to the Father. I can only do what I see the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So it says, you you ain't seen nothing yet. What is to come is going to be even greater that the Father does through me. So the Father worked through Him, and He works through us. He is the one that we go to first, as we shall soon see. Well, we already have in some respects, pray your Father in heaven. But the relationship will be shown in some of the scriptures we're about to go to. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom He will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. When the Son takes the list of the 144,000 He wishes to marry to the Father, the Father committed to Him that responsibility of making that judgment and then presenting the list to the Father. And they will totally agree on the list. The Father is not going to go through and say, Well, you know, Son, I don't think you want that one. They will have talked it over. They will have made their feelings known to each other, and then that list will be presented as to who will be resurrected or changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be a part of the bride of Christ. But it is something that has been assigned to Christ by the Father. So he says, the Father is not going to make that judgment. I have been given that authority. So he is certainly very important in the equation, as we shall see. But he is not the final say, nor is he the ultimate God. He is in subservience to his Father. And that is true to this day. Did I finish where I wanted to go here? Uh, No, let's go on down. I wanted to, to... 
He's committed all the judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son, honors not the Father, which has sent him. So there's no question here of who is in charge, but you have to honor both. Now, the world has gotten it backward in Protestantism, and they very rarely talk about the Father much at all in church. They talk about Jesus. Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus everything. And they leave the Father out. Now, many of you have been so far removed from Protestant churches, perhaps you don't realize that. But if you'll remember back in your experience in Protestantism, it was mostly about Jesus. The Father was rarely mentioned. We hear more about the Father in God's church than we do Christ Himself. And only as Christ relates to the Father and the relationship with Him that we have toward the Father. The Father is the ultimate. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. So he's here to tell us about the Father. And if you believe what I tell you about the Father, he says, then you can have eternal life. So the ultimate reward comes from hearing what the Son has to say, and He became the Word of God. He inspired the ones who wrote this book as the Melchizedek of the Old Testament and as the Lord of the New Testament. It was inspired. He is the Word that the Father sent. And He created all things. And without Him was nothing created. The Father assigned Him that task. And he points it out very clearly. And shall not come into condemnation. If you accept what I say about the Father, you'll have eternal life, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So again, he says, you'll hear the word of the Son of God, but it all, this whole context points to the Father. For as the Father has life in Himself, so has He given to the Son to have life in Himself, <coughs> and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. So here He begins to open up a little bit what we will see in the book of Hebrews. That it is through Christ that we are able to approach the Father. Without him, that was impossible. Um, chapter 6, verse 26. Emmanuel answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Um, Verse 27, labor not for the food which perishes, but for that which food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for him has God the Father sealed. So he says, I've been given the authority and the responsibility to lead you to God who has sealed you. Or no, who Christ was the one that the Father had sealed or set aside or approved for a particular 
job, and that was to lead us to everlasting life through the Father. Then said they to him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Speaking of the Father. Emmanuel answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So he said, You have to accept me. He says in another place, I am the door, I am the gate, I'm the way. There's no other way you can enter except through him. But it is entering into the good graces of and the everlasting life of the Father that he is pointing to. They said therefore to him, What sign do you show then that we may see and believe you? What do you work? Our fathers did eat man in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Emmanuel said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. They had physical bread on the earth, the manna, the quail. But he says, I'm sending, he's sending you true spiritual food through me. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Give us this bread. And Emmanuel said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But I say to you, or I said to you, that you shall also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day, the last great day of the feast, the second resurrection. So it's clear here what the relationship is. Second uh, Peter 1. Second Peter 1. And here I want verse 17. For he, speaking of Christ, received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God conferred honor and glory to the Son, and he returned to glory at one point. Uh, let's go to Revelation. Let's see, I skipped one. Maybe I better go back just for a moment. Hold your finger there. Uh, John 8, I wanted to cover as well. John 8 and verse 49. Emmanuel answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father and you to dishonor me. So he says, I honor the father. You ought to honor him and honor me. And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeks and judges. So he wasn't here to seek his glory. He wasn't here to claim worship to himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Now, I'm not here to seek my glory, but you better pay attention to who I am. Then said the Jews to him, Now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, whom you make yourself? Emmanuel answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. 
It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that He is your God. Now, you say He's your God, and yet He's honoring me. He's not honoring you. The honor comes from the Father. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I should say, I know Him not, I shall be a liar like you are. But I know Him, and keep His saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Christ talked to Abraham and showed him things that would be, and showed him the power that he had, even in having Isaac born. Emmanuel answered and said to him, you, you got it all wrong here. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am one of his titles. He was there before Abraham. So then they decided to throw stones at him. <coughs> but he did not take credit. Now to Matthew 16, uh, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So he's coming not in his glory, but in the reflected glory of the Father that is conferred upon him. Revelation 5. And here I want verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And then he is to be worshipped. He has returned to his Father. He is coming back in glory as God, as the Son of God. And he and the Father will come to rule on the earth during the millennium, as Revelation clearly points out. So, I'm not saying we should not worship Christ. We certainly should. But I find no place where it says that we should pray to Him. He always pointed to the Father. And He told us very clearly, when you pray, pray our Father. And that is what He did as an example, and we are to follow in His steps and do as He did. Now, where does Christ then fit in there? And I'm not, I could take a lot of time. I have a lot of scriptures here. Uh, let's consider just a few. Christ as our mediator. Now, remember we saw a little earlier in a scripture that he was saying, I'm not going to pray for you. You're going to be able to pray for yourself. Now, let's see that in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, beginning there anyway, and we'll see a clearer picture as we go along here. I don't have much time, and I want to finish this section today. First uh, Timothy 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Emmanuel, as we call him. So he says here that there is the one God, the Father, and the, there is a mediator then between us and him. So he is there between us and God. Hebrews 8, verse 6. But, how, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator 
of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. What does a mediator do? If you have somebody on earth that have difficulties between them, you have someone who mediates the situation, who helps get the parties together to make something work. And Christ is there because our relationship with the Father from Adam on down has been bad. And we needed someone in there to help make it right. And that's the job He's been given to do, is mediate between us and the Father. (coughs) Chapter 9, verse 15 of Hebrews. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, His, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Now, he's the door, as I said earlier. Without him, we could not receive everlasting life from the Father. And no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John 6.44. But it is through Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church, that we can approach the Father. So, by dying... And wiping away sin so that we could approach the Father, Christ is our mediator. He is there to help the situation. Hebrews 12, verse 24. Uh, And to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. Now, he is also our high priest. Now, the the whole book of Hebrews is very clear on this. He goes through, Paul is explaining to the Jews who did not accept Christ. Now, here's the problem. He was asking them just who was Christ. They killed him, and they would not accept him, and to this day, most of them have not. A few Messianics have accepted Protestantism, but they still have not accepted the true Christ. And they've not accepted his ways and are not following what he says for the most part. Perhaps there are a few isolated individuals that might have more truth. But the Jews essentially essentially have never followed Christ. So that's what this book is about. Who was he? And he shows that he is the high priest. What is a high priest there for? He is to be a mediator and a go-between between the parties, between a man and God. And we all know the story here, without going through it all, about when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two. Now, in the original tabernacle in the wilderness, the Holy of Holies could not be approached except by the high priest, Aaron, once a year. The Holy of Holies, representing God the Father, could not be approached but once a year. And that by only by Aaron, the high priest. A high priest of men who had his own faults and problems and who had to put on who had to cleanse himself and put on holy garments before he could go before God himself. Now the typology in Hebrews is very clear. The Christ has become our high priest, having become a man having lived sinlessly as no other human high priest had ever done or would afterward. 
and therefore he could approach the Father. And he took all our sins before the Father, and through his death they were forgiven. And by that act, when he died and sin was covered, the veil of the temple was rent in two. I think physically in the temple, but also symbolically so that now every one of us can go to the Father. We could not before that. He says, the time is here and shall be that true worshipers will approach the Father. So that is what allowed us to go before the Father and therefore be able to pray our Father which is in heaven. So what Christ told them there in Matthew 6 about prayer was a prophecy about the way things are going to be when I die and from there after when the way to the Father was opened. So, we go to Him, the Father, in the name of, by the authority of, our High Priest and Mediator, Emmanuel the Christ. That is what gives us access. <clears throat> now, let's go to Romans 16. I'll start wrapping this up here very quickly. Romans 16 Verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Emmanuel the Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. So it is being reiterated here that our ability to go through Christ to the Father is a secret, a mystery that had been held back until the New Testament. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So, through Christ go our prayers to God. We pray the Father, but He is the filter, the intercessor, the mediator, and the high priest, and the husband-to-be. He is always there. He opened the veil to the Father to allow us to go directly to God. And no man had been allowed that until he died. We have access day and night, 24-7, 365 and a quarter, to the Father in heaven through Christ. So how does the relationship work? Every prayer that you pray is addressed to the Father, not to the Son. But every prayer that goes there goes through the Son. Because He is the one that opened the door, who opened the veil, who opened the way to approach the Father. And it is only through His name it is only through His authority that we can even approach the Father. So we begin our prayer by approaching the Father because of what Christ did and now we are able to do. But when we close our prayer, how do we close it? In the name of, by the authority of, through the priesthood of, in the mediation of the Christ. So, you approach the Father in the name of the Son. 
because without Him, you simply can't do it. So you don't pray to Christ, you pray to the Father through Christ. So every prayer you make then goes to the Father, but the Son hears it. He listens to it. And I think that sometimes He mediates it. In other words, that one down there is praying for forgiveness. That one's praying for mercy. And I know you might say, you broke my law. Why should I extend mercy? And Christ says, Father, I was there. I had the same problem. I had the same temptation. And believe me, it was hard. And I learned obedience by the things I suffered. It was tough for me, and it's tough for them. I'm requesting, as this prayer comes through me, that you have mercy on that one, because I know exactly what happened. And the Father says, you're right, son. I forgive. That's the relationship.